From Hollidaysburg to Erie, Gettysburg to Pittsburgh, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, February is Heart Month. For a look at what you need to do to promote good heart health, we talk with Dr. Marie Gayette from the UPMC Health Plan. The city of Pittsburgh is trying to find a way to collect more revenue from the nonprofit organizations operating within the city's limits. Frank Gamrat and Eric Montardi have details on the Allegheny Institute report. And it is yet another acronym, ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance. It is yet another left-wing attempt at controlling the U.S. economy. Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania has this week's Lincoln Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to Dr. Marie Gayette in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. According to a report in Broad and Liberty, the identity of a state representative accused of groping a lobbyist for the Service Employees International Union is, quote, one of the worst-kept secrets, end quote, in Harrisburg. But the representative is a Democrat, and with his party holding a slim one-seat lead in the House, it appears no action will be taken against him. This has prompted Republicans to accuse House Democrats of a double standard, pointing out if a member of the GOP stood accused, Democrats would be demanding an immediate resignation. Becky Corbin, a former Republican representative from Chester County, told Broad and Liberty that politics has trumped ethics and that House Democrats have abandoned the so-called hashtag MeToo movement to remain in power. Speaking of the Pennsylvania House, it reconvened this past week after a six-week stalemate. Special elections were held in early February for three vacant seats, and those new representatives were sworn into office, giving Democrats a one-seat majority. Speaker Mark Rossi called the House into special session to consider advancing a proposed constitutional amendment opening a retroactive window for victims of child sexual abuse to sue. House Democrats are demanding the proposed amendment advance solo, despite the fact the state Senate approved the amendment but coupled it with two others. The issue would have been on the ballot two years ago, but the administration of former Governor Tom Wolfe failed to take the necessary action to advertise the ballot measure, so the required voter referendum never happened. An analysis from the University of North Carolina's Kennan Institute of Private Enterprise warns there will continue to be volatility in the U.S. economy, but not all regions will see a downturn. The Center Square reports the Philadelphia region might not be so lucky. The report suggests Philly could suffer more than other major cities if an economic downturn occurs. Cities with tech industries are expected to continue growing, but Philadelphia joins Memphis, Detroit, and Virginia Beach as having economies most likely to experience an economic downturn. Overall, however, the Institute projects any slowdown in the economy would be relatively mild. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. U.S. Senator John Fetterman struggled to recover from a stroke, and the drama of DeMar Hamlin's collapse during an NFL football game 
have placed a renewed spotlight on heart health. Dr. Marie Gayette is medical director at the UPMC Health Plan. She is here for a discussion on cardiopulmonary health. Marie, welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. Doctor, when we talk about cardiovascular disease, we're talking about strokes and heart attacks in particular. They're something that people are very familiar with, especially strokes over the last few weeks with Senator John Fetterman having been in the news as he attempts to come back and rehabilitate himself from a stroke. But does this include other conditions as well? You make a great point here. So cardiovascular disease was refers to two different organ systems. So cardio is the heart itself, and vascular is the blood vessels. And as you mentioned, blood vessels go to your brain. So cardiovascular disease includes stroke, but your blood vessels go everywhere else in your body as well. So cardiovascular disease can really affect any part of your body. When you're talking about a heart attack, obviously people know what the symptoms of that are very quickly. What about a stroke? What sort of symptoms should people be on the lookout for either in themselves or if they're around a loved one? A stroke, you are looking for any signs of decreased blood flow to the brain. And some of the symptoms that we think about immediately would be weakness or numbness on one side of the body, difficulty speaking. And some of the symptoms that we may see that look a little bit different would be feeling lightheaded or dizzy or nauseous. Those can be symptoms of a stroke as well. When you talk about symptoms of a heart attack, I wanted to go back to that part of it for a moment too, because this is a really important part of it. So just like we can have some symptoms of a stroke that are not classical, that we not don't think of immediately, right? Like nausea. People feel nausea for lots of reasons. We don't immediately connect it with a stroke. Same thing with heart disease. So the typical textbook symptoms that we think about of this crushing chest pain in the middle of your chest that often goes over to the left side of your chest and into your left arm and up into your left jaw, that's what we call a a textbook uh, example of a heart attack. And there are lots of people who have heart attacks with those symptoms. But you can also have more atypical symptoms of a heart attack. So that chest pain may not be right in the center of your chest. It may radiate actually to both arms and both sides of your jaw, and you may feel just a little bit nauseated or not quite well. And one of the things to think about is that in women, those symptoms are atypical more often. So one of the reasons that we've seen delayed diagnosis in women when compared to men is because the symptoms can sometimes be a little bit less typical. So it's important to listen to your body for lots of different reasons. You mentioned women, doctor. Women and black Americans are often at a higher risk than males and other ethnic groups. Do we know why that's the case? There's lots of reasons that go into that. But the important thing to remember with that is that we need to make sure that when we are doing screening for any of these diseases and education about how they might present, that we are actually reaching all the folks who may have uh, a higher incidence or uh, atypical symptoms, like you mentioned, women and black adults as well. I know every time I go in for my annual checkup, the doctor always says, lose weight, exercise more. I guess that's a standard thing for physicians to tell folks. But (laughs) when, when you're looking at risk factors, what are factors that people should be aware of and have those conversations with their doctor? 
So you mentioned two of the the most important, which are physical inactivity and obesity. And physical inactivity, that's one of the ones that we can each do something about. And when we want to do something about it, it is often good to think about that in small pieces, right? So not, I want to do some physical activity, so I'm going to train for a 5K or I'm going to train for a marathon, but I want to do some more physical activity, so tomorrow I'm going to walk five minutes around my neighborhood. So you can start really small to address that physical inactivity piece of it. The other risk factors include a diet that's high in saturated fats and cholesterol, smoking, and then some other diseases that contribute to heart disease. So high blood pressure and diabetes and high cholesterol all go along with that as well. So it's important to talk to your doctor, both screening for all of those diseases, as well as thinking about how can I change my diet? How can I change my physical activity? And again, sometimes and often that's in small ways. We are talking with Dr. Maria Gayette, who is medical director at the UPMC Health Plan. It is, of course, Heart Month. And you've mentioned some of the activities that we can participate in to promote a healthy heart. Of course, exercise is one. Are there any other areas, any other thing that we should do? For example, how often should we see a physician for a checkup? It's important to see your physician for a checkup every year, but it may be more frequent depending on what your risk factors are and what your health conditions are. One of the things to think about when you're going to see your doctor is to prepare a little bit for that visit. And when I say prepare, I don't mean you have to spend hours and hours in in preparation for it or you have to change anything specifically, but prepare in thinking about what types of questions you want to ask your doctor. So we prescribe medications for high blood pressure and diabetes and high cholesterol. And it turns out that sometimes patients don't take those medications. And there's a lot of reasons for not taking those medications. Sometimes they can't afford it. Sometimes the medications make them feel bad. Sometimes they've just got so many medications that it's hard to keep track of. So thinking about that And bringing that information into the office with you is really helpful because if we need to adjust those medications, we can. And we can do so with your help, right? So we can do shared decision-making and have a conversation about those medications that you're on so we can get it right. Because if you come in and you say, yep, I've been taking my medications all along, haven't missed any, and your blood pressure is still high, then our first response is going to be to up that blood pressure medication or add another blood pressure medication, when really it might be because you're not taking it because it makes you feel crummy and you have to switch to a different type of blood pressure medication. How do genetics play into cardiovascular disease? If I have members in my family who have suffered heart attack, stroke, high blood pressure, is that likely to be something that is genetically passed along? So there are genes that are associated with it. It doesn't mean that you will get heart disease if your family member got heart disease, but you should ask your family members about their health if they're comfortable sharing with with you. And if you feel comfortable sharing with them, sending that information back out in the other direction. If you know that you have had a family member with heart disease at a young age, that's really important to know as well, because those are the folks who have a higher genetic risk often. Many of us were watching when DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field during a football game here just a few weeks back. We sat there as for a rather extended period of time, 
the first responders were providing CPR. How can we find out where to learn how to perform CPR? Because we learned in that instance that those very first minutes are very, very critical to a recovery. They are. And bystander ER is really a wonderful tool for all of us to be able to use because you never know when that moment is going to be. And living in a community where you have a higher rate of uh, bystander CPR means that you have a better chance of of living after that uh, sudden cardiac arrest. So DeMar Hamlin actually is asking us all to learn CPR. And you can go to www.heart.org to find classes on, on how to learn CPR. I want to mention one other thing when we talk about CPR. So when we talk about CPR, it's cardio, which is your heart, pulmonary, which is your lungs, resuscitation. So we're thinking about both your heart and your lungs. And we usually think of that lung part in what is often mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and the cardio part in when we're pushing on the chest to do the chest compressions. Even if you are just able to do the hands-only piece of it, that's still helpful. So something to think about as you're learning CPR and as you are presented with opportunities to do CPR is that if you say, whoa, I don't know this person, I don't have a mask with me, I don't quite feel comfortable doing that part of it, you can still help. Well, certainly from DeMar Hamlin, we've learned the importance of something good coming out of that whole situation. We have been talking with Dr. Maria Gayet. She is the medical director at the UPMC Health Plan. Doctor, tell us a bit about UPMC, and do you have a website where folks can go if they want to learn more? Our Heart and Vascular Institute is absolutely ready to serve when folks need us. And if you go to UPMC, check your heart, you can find out everything you need to know about how to check your heart and think about how can I start getting that healthier and how can I support my family in doing so as well. Dr. Maria Gayet, Medical Director at the UPMC Health Plan. Doctor, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Across Penn's Woods, cities are looking for ways to collect more revenue from nonprofit organizations operating within their borders. The city of Pittsburgh has become especially aggressive, as we learn from Frank Gamrad and Eric Montardi on this Allegheny Institute report. Hello and welcome to the Allegheny Institute report on the Lincoln Institute Radio Journal. I'm your host, Frank Gamrad, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Eric Montardi. Let's talk a little tax-exempt property. You recently did a policy brief that looks at the mayor of the city of Pittsburgh's plan to try to get a little more money out of tax-exempt properties, specifically those owned by our good friends at UPMC, Duquesne University, Carnegie Mellon University, and the University of Pittsburgh. You want to give our listeners an overview of what the mayor is looking for with his commission of this study? The executive order that the mayor signed in January directs two departments, the Department of Finance and the Department of Law, to examine all tax-exempt property in the city, determine if it's owned by a purely public charity under state law, and then direct them to act on that. Now, when it says look at all tax-exempt property, that is a very broad base of exempt properties because you have things that are owned by federal, state, local government, school districts, authorities, 
churches and religious institutions, purely public charities. So the executive order itself says that churches and religious institutions won't be part of the review, and it's probably a good guess that rather quickly government property will be excluded because it's, the city's not going to tax itself and it's not going to tax another level of government. Then we're down to the purely public charities. Now, a proposal last year in 2022 estimated there's about 500 parcels owned by colleges and hospitals, and that's probably not all of the purely public charity owned property in the city, but there's supposed to be this review. And as you mentioned, the, the purpose of it is to determine if a purely public charity owns a property, are they meeting what the requirements are under state law? And then if the city examination finds that they're not, presumably then they're going to go to Allegheny County, which assesses property, and try to convince them that something that is tax exempt should be taxable. Or it could be just to get an inventory of what is in the city and then go to these exempt organizations and make a case for a payment in lieu of taxes arrangement, which that's been mentioned over the years. When the city was in Act 47, it did collect a good bit of money through an arrangement. Right now for 2023, they have budgeted around $500,000 or so from what they call nonprofit payment for services. Now, this is obviously a problem for cities across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. While this is going on here in Pittsburgh, it's not a purely Pittsburgh problem because any city that has a university or a college or some kind of nonprofit entity is going to look to them like, well, we're providing the services, you should pay something. In your research, you mentioned that there was a 1985 Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision that kind of guides what is a pure public charity for purposes of the law. Could you let us know what those rules are? Sure. There's a five-point test. The, most cities and taxing bodies just refer to it as the HUP test, like H-U-P, it's Hospital Utilization Project. And that was a, a case that was decided, decided by the Supreme Court. And it's a five-point test that says if a uh, an entity that wants to be declared a purely public charity meets, then they are legally a purely public charity. And those are including the criteria that included there are, do they advance a charitable purpose? Do they operate freely? from private profit motive, and do they relieve the government of some of its burden? So again, this is a commonwealth-wide problem, and, and this is not the first bite at this apple. You know, obviously here in Pittsburgh, and I'm sure in other areas, they, they've done this before. The controllers of both the city and county got together and did a similar report a few years ago. What was their findings? When they looked at the city of Pittsburgh, and this was based on November 2021 values of, uh, of, of property, there's $32 billion in assessed value in the city. $12 billion of that is tax-exempt property. $6 billion of that was owned by nonprofits. And $4 billion of that was owned by what the report report called the Big Five, which is two hospital systems and three universities. What this study did, much like ones that came in 2012 and 2014, was to estimate what is termed a tax loss. This is the exempt value. If it were taxable, then subjecting that taxable value to the millage rates that the governing body levies, which in the city of Pittsburgh's case is 8.06 mills, and then comes up with this is how much money would be collected. Well, it's a very big if because you have to determine is the property charitable. If it does, it's going to stay off of the tax rolls. What the study then did was after estimating the tax loss, which they put at $34.5 million for the city, was the city were able to negotiate a pilot agreement with 
these five large nonprofits, if they had 25% of the tax loss, if they were able to get 50% of the tax loss, whatever it would be, it would be a sliding scale in the report, mm-hmm. was to determine this would be a payment in lieu of taxes to the city, in in that case, again, a fraction of the $34.5 million in taxes. And of course, that's really what the city is after, because most municipalities and cities are living off of recovery plan money somewhere along the line, and they know this is about to end. And so the city of Pittsburgh would rather go forth and try to squeeze a little bit more money out of the nonprofits in a pilot or to be able to tax them. But like you said before, they're not going to go after government-owned entities And in Pittsburgh, we've got the Sports and Exhibition Authority, which owns two stadiums and a convention center and an arena. And you you have a lot of tax increment financing deals that they cut over the years that for department stores and hotels and and whatnot to get all all that going. This really does appear to be a money grab on this city's, city's end. Now, you do have some great recommendations on this policy brief. Could you tell our, our listeners what they are? Well, we'll start with that one that you just mentioned about the tax abatements. If you look at what the city defers or abates through economic development arrangements, in 2021, that's $8 million. That's money that could be back into the city's tax coffers if they didn't have to engage in economic development arrangements. And that's, again, that comes from having a business-friendly climate, focusing on core functions. One of the department heads that's going to be involved with this review pointed to that the money from the American Rescue Plan will be going away. It has to be spent because it is one-time federal aid. And then when that's gone, the city's going to face a revenue shortfall. Terminology being quite important here, yes, the, the city's revenues are going to fall. However, the city will still be operating with a positive result when you look at revenues versus expenditures and their ending year fund balance should be meeting what their minimum requirement is in city code. And that's based on their five-year forecast. So if the city wants to have a greater positive operating result or grow the fund balance, I think it gets back to the things that we recommend, which is focus on your core services, something that's not a core city service, look for some other type of entity that could handle it and create business-friendly policies that's going to grow the tax base. As we mentioned earlier, this is something that previous mayors have tried to do, trying to get money out of these organizations, sort of like the unicorn for these guys. They keep chasing it but it never seems to stick. Well, this is great information. Uh, we'd like to thank our, our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to read about this topic or others on our website, please visit us at alleghenyinstitute.org. Thanks for listening to the Allegheny Institute Report on the Lincoln Institute Radio Journal. ESG, Environmental Social Governance, threatens the integrity of federal and state investment programs by injecting ideology into the process. Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania has details on this Lincoln Radio Journal commentary. Over the past few years, the proliferation of acronyms we've become accustomed to using seemingly has no end. PPP, ARPA, CARES, PPE, to name just a few. Well, there's a new acronym you might be hearing more frequently than ever from federal officials. ESG. This stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Just like CARES, the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act, might sound altruistic. ESG suggests it's something noble for society. But it is yet another political agenda, 
a regulation that could put retirement savings of Americans at risk. ESG is an investment rule that would push retirement fund managers to make unsound, politically motivated ESG investments. The new rule was issued through the Department of Labor in November of 2022. Through this rule, the Biden administration eviscerates fiduciary obligations currently in practice and undermines congressional intent by encouraging retirement fund managers to inject environmental, social, and corporate governance goals into their investment decisions rather than making decisions that will protect and grow Americans' hard-earned retirement savings. This regulation replaces a previous rule that mandated that retirement fund managers solely prioritize making decisions that will get Americans the best returns possible. Under the new regulation, plan participants could unknowingly be enrolled in ESG funds, which may prioritize political interests over sound investment strategies without their consent. According to research from the University of Chicago, mutual funds scoring highly on ESG factors are constantly outperformed by funds rated lowest for ESG. According to a Global Strategy Group and SEC Newsgate Monitor report, 85% of the country does not even know what ESG is and therefore would not be aware of the financial risks their retirement account managers are subjecting them to when they actively pursue ESG investment decisions. Well, Senator Mike Braun of Indiana and U.S. Representative Andy Barr of Kentucky have introduced joint resolutions in their respective chambers to put a stop to the Biden administration's use of Americans' retirement accounts for funding political agendas designed to enrich administration allies. The support for these joint resolutions is robust with a coalition of over 100 organizations, including Americans for Prosperity, united and voicing their support as advancing American freedom, as well as 83 co-sponsors in the House and 49 in the Senate both lists of co-sponsors being bipartisan in nature. Risking our financial futures to play politics is unacceptable. Of our 19-member Pennsylvania delegation, three members of Congress have signed on to Representative Barr's resolution as co-sponsors, Congressman Dan Muser, Scott Perry, and Guy Rushenthaler. Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania has formally requested a number of additional members sign on to the list and will keep you up to date as they act. I'm Ashley Klingensmith, State Director with Americans for Prosperity PA. You can connect with us on Facebook by searching at PAAFP, and you can follow us on Twitter by searching at AFP Pennsylvania. To get in touch more directly, you can email us at infopa at afphq.org. That's infopa at afp 
hq.org. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. And the annual Pennsylvania Leadership Conference is just about a month away. It is the premier gathering of grassroots conservatives every year here in the Keystone State. This year's Pennsylvania Leadership Conference will be held March 30th through April 1st at the Penn Harris Hotel in Camp Hill. Kellyanne Conway will be the featured dinner speaker. Guy Benson of Fox News will be the luncheon speaker. And as always, John Gizzi of Newsmax will headline the conference breakfast. There will be workshops, seminars, panels, and additional speakers. Complete information and registration for the 2023 Pennsylvania Leadership Conference can be found at paleadershipconference.org. That's paleadershipconference.org. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, and the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal. Plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.